you can now support me financially with a small monthly donation. If you do, I pledge to use your money to buy yarn and coffee. Follow the link in my Instagram bio or in this episode's description to learn more. Thank you and enjoy today's episode. Disclaimer before we get started, I am not a doctor or a medical professional. This podcast is not meant to give medical advice or education, merely entertainment. If you have a medical question, please ask your doctor. Thank you. So as I'm about to mention, I got a new mic for my birthday. Very excited to use it. It is slightly worse quality than the one that Sam had, but still should be good. However, it and my recording app were not communicating very well, so it is unfortunately kind of bad quality today. Um, The audio cuts in and out a bit. Very sorry. I promise I will fix it for next week. I even tried to like re-record today. Things just weren't working out, so we are just stuck with this audio. I know it's not the best. I'm very sorry. Thank you for being patient with me, and I promise next week it will be better. Thanks. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crocheting Through Medical History. I am Maria, here to crochet and talk about medical history. Right off the bat, you may notice that if you are watching, that I do not have a giant microphone in my frame. However, the audio quality might have gone down slightly. I got a new microphone for my birthday that is not quite as nice as the one that Sam had, but it is much easier to use and does not take up the entire screen. So enjoy i suppose and if you're not watching on youtube you should go watch give me a like and a subscribe and a comment and let me know what you think today i am crocheting i don't remember if i was crocheting this ever before but a baby hat i think i was crocheting this before i'm still crocheting it i probably haven't worked on this project since whenever you last saw it so we're doing it again. Um, alrighty, let's get into it. Today we're talking about preeclampsia, eclampsia, whatever, we go into both. <laughs> um, and before we start, I just wanted to say I was initially very confused on the difference between preeclampsia and eclampsia. However, I believe I got it. So, preeclampsia is a condition that can occur during pregnancy, um, and it causes the woman to be hypertensive, and there is protein in her urine, fluid buildup or edema that causes, like, swelling and a lot more symptoms. Preeclampsia can have lots of bad effects on the body and on the baby, both during gestation and postpartum. Um... And eclampsia is preeclampsia, but also with seizures. So, like, the same thing, but even more severe. Obviously, before they had terms for all these things, it just, like, was the condition. So, 
I think I, I kind of use them the terms interchangeably just because it's hard to know what exactly they were talking about historically. Um, so my apologies if that is bothersome. I'm sorry. I'm trying my best here. I don't fully understand it. So it's rough. <clears throat> I am getting over a cold, so I'm like mostly okay. I just still kind of sound like a frog. So, preeclampsia, like many conditions, was first recorded by Hippocrates in 400 BC. He described the condition as a headache during pregnancy with heaviness and convulsions, and it was the first sign of an unhealthy pregnancy. At that time, treatment was bringing the body's fluids back in balance through diet, purging, and bloodletting. If you want more explanations on these historical treatment techniques, uh, you should go listen to episode 3, Seven Unusual Ancient Medical Techniques, available on YouTube and the other listening platforms. So, in the Middle Ages, treatment for medical conditions were often religious in nature. So, charms, amulets, faith healing, praying, miracles, etc., and as these therapeutic methods fell away, treatment for preeclampsia evolved to multiple phlebotomies during pregnancy to reduce cerebral congestion. So they thought that an excess of this blood carrying bad things was the reason for these symptoms. <laughs> I got this yarn from Goodwill, and I did the center pull, and it just all fell apart. At the end of the 1500s, Wolfgangus Gabelcoverus identified preeclampsia as epilepsy of the pregnant uterus. No major advancements in research or treatment of preeclampsia were made until the 1600s when Francois Marceau became a leader in the field of obstetrics. He was the first to correlate that first pregnancies were more likely to experience convulsions than successive pregnancies. Marceau was not able to contribute these gestational convulsions to anything in particular, but theorized they might be from abnormalities in the intrauterine fluids or fetal death, in which the retained corpse would cause a foul smell and release its humors, upsetting the body to the point of convulsion. In 1619, Verndo first used the term eclampsia in his treatise of gynecology. In the 1700s, Boissier de Savages made the distinction between seizures caused by eclampsia and epilepsy, though his definition of eclampsia was not specific to pregnancy. He also stated his belief that convulsions were caused by nature trying to rid the body of morbid elements. At the end of the century, Demene identified edema to preeclampsia. In the 1800s, it was theorized that these gestational symptoms were caused by toxins. Even with this new thought, pregnant women with headaches and edema were still treated in hospitals with bleeding and purging in attempts to remove excess toxins from their bodies. Bloodletting was particularly dangerous to eclamptic women as the jugular vein or temporal artery were compromised in attempts to improve prolonged convulsions. 
1821, Dr. Thomas Denman's introduction to the practice of midwifery further explored the causes of seizures and concluded that external factors such as city living did not inspire convulsions as much as the uterus did. His theory surrounding this was that a uterus enlarged by pregnancy added pressure to the surrounding blood vessels, pushing the blood up into the head and causing excess cerebral pressure that led to convulsing. In lieu of bloodletting, Denman suggested opioids, warm baths, splashing the face with cold water, and hurried labor, though only if the woman was physiologically prepared as to avoid maternal mortality. In 1840, Pierre Rayer discovered proteinuria, or excess protein in the urine, with eclampsia, and Jean Lever later distinguished proteinuria as being specifically a symptom of preeclampsia. Around this time, preeclampsia was widely recognized by headache, headache, temporary loss of vision, severe stomach pain, and edema in the upper body. Three years later, Dr. Robert Johns made the connection between gestational symptoms now attributed to preeclampsia and postpartum convulsions. In 1849, Dr. William Tyler Smith's parturition and the principles and practices of obstetrics rebuked the theory of cerebral congestion causing seizures and instead offered other causative factors. Stimuli of the spinal center, bloodletting, external stimuli such as wind and temperature, irritation of abdominal organs, and toxins. By the end of the 19th century, it was widely accepted that seizures were induced by toxins, particularly meat toxins. Pregnant women were encouraged to reduce meat consumption and instead have a diet of produce and milk products. In the 1890s, though, the invention of the mercury manometer to measure blood pressure made it possible to identify preeclampsia no longer as a toxemia condition, but as a hypertensive condition, which researchers Vaquez and Novicourt are cited as discovery. Today, hypertension and proteinuria are the most common diagnostic elements of preeclampsia. Injection of magnesium sulfate became a safe and effective method of treatment for eclamptic seizures in the 1900s, popularized by physicians Lazard and Dorset. While the etiology of preeclampsia remains unknown, intravenous administration of magnesium sulfate is still a viable method of treatment. In the 1930s, Denman's idea of not rushing labor in preeclamptic pregnancies returned. Tweedy, a physician from Dublin, wanted to maintain pregnancy as long as possible, so much so that he avoided as much reflex stimula stimulation as possible. Refusing to perform vaginal examinations, abdominal palpations, or massage, and other factors that can stimulate labor. He further reduced stimuli by keeping the patient sedated and on high doses of morphine. Stroganoff, a physician from Russia, treated eclampsia with the main goal of eliminating seizures, as they cause damage to the heart, lungs, kidneys, and liver. Similar to Tweedy, Stroganoff reduced prenatal stimuli by performing exams in dark, quiet rooms with the patient lightly sedated. He also kept patients sedated with morphine and chloral hydrate and supplemented them with oxygen for respiratory function and digitalis for cardiac function. 
Stroganoff also believed labor should start on its own time, but would aid delivery by breaking the vaginal membranes once the woman was six centimeters dilated. The 1960s brought more research of the physiological reasons for preeclampsia and eclamptic placental biopsies showed abnormalities in the blood vessels that impaired blood flow to the fetus. Since the 1960s, proper prenatal care has been used to detect signs of preeclampsia, namely routine blood pressure measurement and urinalysis. Since no cure for the condition is known, preventing the symptoms from further developing is the best management option. Research in the 1980s thought that the worm-like parasite Hydatoxy lualba may be responsible for preeclamptic symptoms, but was later proved to be merely a Hydatoxy lualba lookalike caused by poor testing quality. Since this time, Dr. Roberts' theory of preeclampsia being an endothelial disorder has been the most believable etiological theory due to changes in the blood. Thank you to the Preeclampsia Foundation and the HHS author manuscripts for the articles used in today's research. And now it is time for Interview with a Real Life Sick Person. Today's real life sick person is my friend Bailey, who experienced preeclampsia during her pregnancy with her daughter. What was your initial reaction when you were diagnosed? What's that again? What does that mean? I was diagnosed less than 12 hours before Meg was born, so there wasn't a whole lot of time to process what it meant. I wasn't in denial and I understood what was going on, but I didn't feel sick. I just knew my shoes didn't fit. What are your top survival strategies for your condition? Prevention. Go to all your prenatal appointments so it can be caught early. Have a blood pressure cuff at home and know the symptoms. Watch for blurrier vision, fatigue, major swelling of the ankles and legs, and take a baby aspirin if you've had preeclampsia before. What is the best thing to come from your condition? God. I wasn't a believer before May was born, and the experience with preeclampsia really taught me that I have zero control over much of anything. It's all in God's hands. My mother-in-law kept telling me to let go and just trust. As a non-believer, I wasn't entirely sure what I was trusting, but as a believer, I now know it's God. You just have to trust that God will take care of you. This experience, along with COVID and the derecho that happened nine days before May was born, set me on the path to walk with Jesus. For those non-Midwesterners out there, um, in August of 2020, we had a derecho, which is basically an inland hurricane. So it left everyone without power and a lot of people without houses. And along with that, half the roads were non-commutable due to downed trees and power lines. So all that in the middle of August with COVID, eight months pregnant, I'm sure that wasn't fun. <laughs> what do you wish the general public knew about your condition? There are still a lot of unknowns. We don't know why some women are more likely to get it. We assume it starts with the placenta, and we know baby aspirin helps some or most of the time, but there isn't a cure-all or even a test to know if you're at risk for it. Like the urine, blood, placenta sample, or an ultrasound. You just have to wait until you have the symptoms. Are there any groups or organizations related to your condition that you want to plug? The Preeclampsia Foundation. 
March of Dimes is another organization that does a lot of research for preeclampsia. I also want to plug La Leche League and Kelly Mom. They have lots of wonderful resources for moms who want to nurse after traumatic, traumatic or premature births. May came at 34 weeks and needed to be on a feeding tube for about 8 days, so nursing was real, real tricky at the beginning. Thank you to my friend Bailey for answering my questions, and for her little girl May, who is now a very cute, very sweet, healthy two-year-old. And thank you to all of you for listening today. Um, my apologies for being absent last week, but I'm glad to be back, even if not at 100%. And only slightly overwhelmed with life. But I'm looking forward to some topics that I have in my head for the next few weeks. So stay tuned because those will be good. As always, if you have any topic suggestions you'd like to hear about or if you have a condition that you would be willing to talk to me about, uh, hit me up, DM me, comment, whatever. I would love to hear from you and to get your input. Um, follow me on YouTube. BRB. Hey. Sorry about that. I'm back. As I was saying, Subscribe on YouTube, Maria Hagerman. Follow me on Instagram, Maria Makes Makes. Share with your friends, like, comment, do what you gotta do, rate me. I've heard that's a thing that can help. Yeah, but I am very thankful for all of you, and I appreciate you listening to today's episode. Have a great week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I will see you next time. Bye!